0: Chapter 14 Iconodualism The Sixth Ecumenical Council, the Third Council of Constantinople, was held in 680-681. A little more than a century later, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the Second Council of Nicaea, was held in 787. Although apart from two papal legates sent from Rome, this Seventh Council was limited to the Eastern Church. Rome recognized it as ecumenical, and only the Galician church in the West withheld recognition for a time. In the century between the 6th and 7th councils, the theological climate had changed. The change had long been in process, but now it commanded the church. Neoplatonism was now dominant as the philosophy undergirding theology, monasticism, ecclesiology, and political science. For Neoplatonism, the universe is a vast scale of being— From brute matter to pure and divine spirit man can look upward or downward and he can move upward or downward on the scale of being he can develop the divinity of his soul or spirit by ascending upwards towards pure spirit or he can debase that spark of divinity by turning to the world of sensations and matter rational knowledge has as its goal the realities or ideas of being and the realm of ideas is mind or the divine The goal of knowledge is mystical union with the one, the word soul. The influence of Neoplatonism, especially through Plotinus, was extensive on Arab thought as well as on Jewish and Christian thinkers. Monasticism was applied Neoplatonism. It called for an ascent in the scale of being by a forsaking of the material for the spiritual world. The idea that spiritual living was somehow superior to material living had no ground in biblical thought. For the Bible, both body and soul were created wholly good by God, and both are alike totally depraved by virtue of the fall of man. Body and soul, the whole man, are involved in man's attempt to be as God. Both body and soul are alike redeemed in Jesus Christ and have a glorious destiny in him. Monasticism veered from monism to a semi-manichaeanism. In monism, all being is one being, the difference being that some forms, such as matter, represent a thinness of being, and spirit represents a higher, purer, more concentrated being. In semi Manichaeanism, spirit is good, matter evil, and true being is spirit, and false being is matter. Neoplatonism Infected Both Church and State For ecclesiastical Neoplatonism, the church, as the realm of spirit, represented the higher order, whereas the state, as the agency of the material world, represented a lower order. For political Neoplatonism, the state represents the logos, or structure of being. The state, therefore, is the highest manifestation of being in the material world, and its ruler is the representative of the idea of being. Set in a Christian context with Neoplatonism, both church and state saw themselves as continuations of the Incarnation. Chalcedonian theology saw the gap between created being and God's uncreated being as bridged only in Jesus Christ, without confusion and without change. For Neoplatonism, all being was seen as one being, and Jesus Christ was the leader in the process of ascent. In Jesus Christ, the process of ascent came to open, institutional focus in history. The idea had become flesh and was leading men into the same realization of the idea, the open and full manifestation of the idea in history as the means of overcoming history. The image or icon of the idea manifested itself in the institution of the church or state. Man, according to the Bible, was created in the image of God. Man was thus an icon of God. The image or icon of Christ could also be manifested in several ways, basically in carved and painted images, and in an institution. The image was one aspect of the continuing incarnation. The saints were represented in icons as aspects of the incarnate idea, even as they incarnated the idea, so their icons incarnated them. The icons of the saints were seen as sufficiently real to be introduced as sponsors at baptisms. It was held that some images had been made without human hands, that some indeed had been miraculously produced by Christ himself. The emperor's image had been the subject too of extensive religious veneration. This veneration antedated the fall of Rome. The emperor's image was carried in religious processions and hailed with a cry, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Churchmen were increasingly agreeable to this. And in 602, Pope Gregory I placed the images of the sinful emperor Focus I in the Lateran. Statutes of Constantine were adored and received sacrifices, candles, incense, and prostration. There were thus two institutional incarnations in the world, church and state, and in both East and West, there was a struggle on the part of both to limit the extent of the incarnation in the other. The iconoclastic controversy was the form the struggle took in the East. Both sides were iconodules, venerators of icons. The imperial party simply became iconoclastic with reference to the church. As Ladner pointed out, the imperial party, with reference to the church, saw that narrowing the extension of Christ's government in the world widened the extension of the emperor's worship. The iconoclastic controversy was a phase of a larger imperial program. As Findlay noted, it embraces a long and violent struggle between the government and the people, the emperor seeking the central power by annihilating every local franchise and even the right of private opinion among their subjects. The emperors wished to constitute themselves the fountains of ecclesiastical, as completely as of civil, legislation. The undergirding philosophy of the struggle was Hellenism. The first appearance of images in any relation to the church was among the Gnostic followers of Carpocrates, who called themselves Gnostics primarily. These Gnostics made religious use of images of the philosophers of the world, i.e. of Pythagoras, Plato, Aristotle, and Christ, and others. The image represented the continuity of being between heaven and earth. The true saint was a man who had transcended the limitations of matter to become a spiritual being. Neoplatonism made asceticism an intellectual and spiritual virtue, an ascent in being and hence an ascent in knowledge and virtue. Asceticism thus was assumed to be indicative of superiority. As Pinkman observed, it was the chosen weapon of the humanitarian. That is why before long a physician who did not become a monk lost his practice. Both church and state claimed to be the true extension of the Incarnation and therefore the only legitimate image bearers. For the church, the imperial icons represented idolatry. For the imperial party, the church's icons were idolatrous. For the imperial party, the emperor was the true vicar of Christ. The gold coins of Byzantium most often bore the head of Christ crowned with the imperial diadem and robed in the emperor's garments. Laws were promulgated in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Master. By the side of the imperial throne was another, empty save for the gospel, before which men bowed. It is the throne of Christ, our true sovereign. The emperor was Christ present as Lord. The emperor's palace was thus a church in a real sense, with even the porter ordained as a priest. The throne was installed in an apse. His receptions were not audiences, but revelations. He did not merely make an appearance, he manifested himself. His meals were full of subtle allusions to the Last Supper. Since the entire meal was a religious ritual, no mistakes were permitted. Anyone who dropped a plate was decapitated, and the guest who witnessed such a sacrilege must have their eyes put out. Any attempt to assassinate the emperor was a crime against God, although a successful attempt was then God's will. The emperor was absolute in his sovereignty, and his power, theoretically universal, did not stop at the frontiers of the empire. Like the church, and for the same reason, his way was oecumenical. Lauprand, in his Antipodosis, gives us a vivid picture of the pageantry and pomp of the emperor's audiences. Gold was heavily used in Byzantium, with golden domes on the churches and golden crosses. The emperor lived in a surrounding of gold, with his clothing interwoven with gold, because the book of Revelation spoke of the heavenly Jerusalem as a city of gold. The coronation of the emperor, as of Nicephorus, was the coronation of Christ, and he emerged as the image of Christ himself. The imperial party thus was wedded to the concept of the empire as the continuation of the incarnation, and the church simply an arm of the empire, and the emperor as the true vicar and representative of Christ. The churchmen who opposed this position saw its implications. Theodore of Studium wrote, Unless the emperor be subject to the law, there are but two possible hypotheses. Either he is God, for divinity alone transcends law, or nothing remains but anarchy and revolution. Theodore championed the church's icons, and held that there was divinity not only in the image, but also in the artist. The artist poured forth his divinity in creating the image, even as God ostensibly poured forth his divinity into his creation. The defense by the church was thus equally Neoplatonistic. The iconoclastic emperors were heretical, and their background was largely monophysite. The emperors who ended the iconoclastic controversy and Constantine VI and Irene who called the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the Second Council of Nicaea 787, were ostensibly orthodox, but their decision left the state essentially unchanged. The church had merely retained the use of icons. It had not altered the position of the emperor or empire. Although the struggle did not end until February 19842, 842, a day which came to be celebrated as the Feast of Orthodoxy, the decision of 787 largely prevailed. The comment of Percival is indicative of the essentials of the council's action in 787. The council decreed that similar veneration and honor should be paid to the representations of the Lord and of the saints as was accustomed to be paid to the larada and tablets representing the Christian emperors to wit, that they should be bowed to and saluted with kisses and attended with lights and the offering of incense. But the council was most explicit in declaring that this was merely a veneration of honor and affection, such as can be given to the creature, and that under no circumstances could the adoration of divine worship be given to them but to God alone theodosius one of the bishops at the council declared for if the people go forth with lights and incense to meet the Lorata and images of the emperors when they are sent to the cities or rural districts they honor surely not the tablet covered over with wax but the emperor himself How much more is it necessary that in the churches of Christ, our God, the image of God, our Savior, and of his spotless mother, and of all the Holy and Blessed Fathers, and ascetics should be painted? This statement indicates the nature of the final settlement. The conflict had been over the religious use of imperial icons versus the religious use of ecclesiastical icons, both institutions claiming to be the true extension of the Incarnation. Now the designation of worship was withdrawn from the icons and their use mutually permitted without disturbing the state's power or sovereignty. Near the end of Session 1, John, the most reverend bishop and legate of the Eastern High Priest, said, This heresy is the worst of all heresies. Woe to the iconoclasts! It is the worst of heresies, as it subverts the incarnation of our Savior. The Incarnation, in this perspective, required continuation, and the icons were thus the continuation of the Incarnation, and denial of the icons was thus subversive of the Incarnation. This meant that two continuing Incarnations were implicitly allowed, one in the State, the other in the Church. This iconoclastic concilium held in Constantinople in 754, had condemned icons as a violation of Chalcedon and of all the six councils. This council called itself the Seventh Ecumenical Council, but it was later condemned as a mock council. No patriarch was present, nor any deputies from Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, or Jerusalem but 338 Eastern bishops attended. This council was called by the Emperor Constantine Copronimus, Constantine V, 741-773, to who had himself styled the 13th Apostle by a subservient church synod. This council of 754 abolished all images and pictures from churches. The theological acumen of this Council was in nearer conformity with the earlier Councils and represented clearer thinking than did the later recognized Council of 787. The Council of 754 declared, After we had carefully examined their decrees under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we found that the unlawful act of painting living creatures blasphemed the fundamental doctrine of our salvation, namely the incarnation of Christ, and contradicted the six holy synods. These condemned Nestorius because he divided the one, Son, and Word of God into two sons, and on the other side, Arius, Dioscurius, Eutyches, and Severus, because they maintained a mingling of the two natures of the one Christ. Wherefore, we thought it right to shew forth with all accuracy in our present definition the error of such as make and venerate these for it is the unanimous doctrine of all the holy fathers and of the six ecumenical synods that no one may imagine any kind of separation or mingling in opposition to the unsearchable unspeakable and incomprehensible union of the two natures in the one hypostasis or person what avails then the folly of the painter who from sinful love of gain depicts that which should not be depicted. That is, with his polluted hands he tries to fashion that which should only be believed in the heart and confessed with the mouth he makes an image and calls it christ the name christ signifies god and man consequently it is an image of god and man and consequently he has in his foolish mind in his representation of the created flesh depicted the godhead which cannot be represented and thus mingled what should not be mingled thus he is guilty of a double blasphemy the one in making an image of the Godhead, and the other by mingling the Godhead and manhood. Those fall into the same blasphemy who venerate the image. Whoever then makes an image of Christ either depicts the Godhead, which cannot be depicted, and mingles it with the manhood, like the monophysites, or he represents the body of Christ as not made divine and separate and as a person apart like the Nestorians. The only admissible figure of the humanity of Christ, however, is bread and wine in the Holy Supper. This and no other form, this and no other type he has chosen to represent his incarnation. Bread he ordered to be brought but not as a representation of the human form, so that idolatry might not arise. And as the body of Christ is made divine, so also this figure of the body of Christ, the bread, is made divine by the descent of the Holy Spirit. It becomes the divine body of Christ by the mediation of the priest who, separating the oblation from that which is common, sanctifies it. Christianity has rejected the whole of heathenism, and so not merely heathen sacrifices, but also the heathen worship of images. This statement indicates the awareness of the issue. The definition of Chalcedon undergirds all the councils, and it is heresy to confuse the two natures, as the iconodules did implicitly. But the point was still missed. The illustration that painting an image of Christ mingled the two natures confused the issue. How could the two natures be confused in a portrait of Christ, when the two natures were present in him? Then the Council of 754 introduced confusion into the sacrament, the only admissible figure of the humanity of Christ. This bread is then made the divine body of Christ by the mediation of the priest. Here again, Neoplatonism entered in, and the way was clearly prepared for the medieval doctrine of the host. The extended incarnation was transferred from the images to the elements of the sacrament. Instead of being a subservient council, the Council of 754 was implicitly closer to medieval Rome in its doctrine of the church than was the Council of 787 in its ecclesiology. The council of 754 also declared that no prince or secular official shall rob the churches as some have done in former times under the pretext of destroying images the integrity of the church as a separate domain was clearly implied the decree of the second council of nicaea 787 said in part to make our confession short, we keep unchanged all the ecclesiastical traditions handed down to us, whether in writing or verbally, one of which is the making of pictorial representations agreeable to the history of the preaching of the gospel, a tradition useful in many respects, but especially in this, that so the incarnation of the word of God is shown forth as real and not merely fantastic, for these have mutual indications, and without doubt have also mutual significations. We therefore, following the royal pathway and the divinely inspired authority of our Holy Fathers and the traditions of the Catholic Church, For, as we all know, the Holy Spirit indwells her, define with all certitude and accuracy that just as the figure of the precious and life-giving cross, so also the venerable and holy images, as well in painting and mosaic as of other fit materials, should be set forth in the holy churches of God, and on the sacred vessels, and on the vestments, and on hangings, and in pictures both in houses and by the wayside, to wit, the figure of our Lord, God, and Savior Jesus Christ, of our spotless Lady, the Mother of God, of the Honorable Angels, of all Saints, and of all pious people. For by so much more frequently as they are seen in artistic representation, by so much more readily are men lifted up to the memory of their prototypes, and to a longing after them, and to these should be given due salutation and honorable reverence, not indeed that true worship of faith which pertains alone to the divine nature, but to these, as to the figure of the precious and life giving cross, and to the book of the Gospels, and to the other holy objects, incense and lights may be offered according to ancient pious custom. For the honor which is paid to the images passes on that which the image represents, and he who reveres the image reveres in it the subject represented. The first point in this decree is well taken. If the incarnation is real, it can be portrayed. An unreal incarnation, one which is merely fantastic, cannot be depicted. Put in modern terms, a true and real Christ can be photographed. A mythical one cannot. The second point is equally valid. Honor paid to the portrait is honor to the one portrayed. To despise a symbol is to despise the one symbolized. Thus, the monk Stephanos brought on his arrest by deliberately insulting the imperial image. He took out a coin in an imperial audience and, calling attention to the image of the emperor, trod it underfoot, saying, What punishment must I suffer should I trample his coin, which bears the emperor's image under my feet? judge from it what punishment he deserves who insults christ and his mother in their image as the council knew the tabernacle had its carved images i.e of the cherubim on the ark pomegranates etc and the bible forbade the worship not the decorative use of these figures but the carvings of the tabernacle were never the object of religious bowing of incense lights or anything else The council justified the veneration of images by citing the biblical instance of veneration of men in its letter to the emperor and empress. And finally, those looking to obtain some gift venerate those who are above them, as Jacob venerated Pharaoh. Therefore, because this term has these many significations, the divine scriptures teach us, Thou shalt venerate the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve, says simply that veneration is to be given to God, but does not add the word only. For veneration being a word of wide meaning is an ambiguous term, but it goes on to say, Thou shalt serve him only, for to God alone do we render Latria. This argument concedes that veneration and worship are identical. God is venerated or worshipped, and images are also. The commandment is said to allow wider latitude to veneration, but service is restricted to God alone. The ostensible biblical justification is a poor one, in that the word only, as well as serve, modify, and explain the act of veneration or worship, and the veneration of superiors, monarchs, and parents was a requirement of the law a respect for God-ordained authorities rather than for the persons involved as men. The images were needed because the church thereby presented itself as the continuing incarnation. Asceticism was a form of this same continuing incarnation, in that the monks ascended upward on the ladder of being and became little Christ, virtually. The monks of Athos in the 14th century claimed in moments of ecstasy to have realized the light of the divine's glory, the uncreated essence of God. This experience was not even Christian in form, let alone content, in that it was a product of fasting plus concentration on one's navel. When Barlaam condemned this practice of navel-watching as ungodly and anti-Christian, a synod was called, and Barlaam and his party were cited as heretics and condemned. Today, on the Sunday of Orthodoxy in the Greek Church, Barlaam's name is mentioned first in the list of those anathematized for heresy those whom Barlaam called the naval sold ones, has triumphed. The liturgy of the Eastern Church is dramatic and enthusiastic, designed to further God-possession, to extend the Incarnation more deeply into the life of the Church, and the monastic clergy, with its dedication to this liturgy, represents a permanently enthusiastic element. The importance of the continuing Incarnation to Nicaea II appeared clearly in Canon 7. That to the churches consecrated, without any deposit of the relics of the saints, the defect should be made good. Paul the Divine Apostle says, The sins of some are open beforehand, and some they follow after. These are their primary sins, and other sins follow these. Accordingly, upon the heels of the heresy of the trotters of the Christians, there followed close other ungodliness." For as they took out of the churches the presence of the venerable images, so likewise they cast aside other customs, which we must now revive and maintain, in accordance with the written and unwritten law. We decree, therefore, that relics shall be placed with the accustomed service in as many of the sacred temples as have been consecrated without the relics of the martyrs. And if any bishop from this time forward is found consecrating a temple without holy relics, he shall be deposed, as a transgressor of the ecclesiastical traditions. The relics and images are here equated, and both are seen as necessary to the church. Indeed, a church is defective, it is stated, without relics, and a bishop consecrating a church without relics is to be deposed as a transgressor. The relics of the saints, even more than their images, represented their holy estate. The relics were venerated, and by the ninth century were believed to have healing powers. Policia discussed the subject in his chapter, of the canonization apotheosis of saints. Apotheosis, of course, means deification. Policia spoke of the custom in antiquity of deifying heroes and deceased rulers. This was, he said, an excellent plan for infusing into men stimulating incentives of virtue. This custom, in a new form, was at length with most excellent judgment carried out in the Christian religion. Some persons in the Middle Ages irreverently put the relics of saints in the same vessel with the Eucharist itself, but this was forbidden by councils in the 16th century. This practice was not at all surprising. It was a logical development. Since the relics were an extension of the Incarnation, and the Eucharist was itself an Incarnation, to bring the two together was simply a conclusion of pious logic. The church thus was not truly a church, not fit to be consecrated if all it had was the Bible. It needed relics, the visible presence of an invisible power. The church had changed, Hellenism had triumphed in the church, and Neoplatonistic humanism had become its orthodoxy. Those who contemplated their navels were to find more support in the church than those who believed in and studied the word of God.